uh, what has gone on in France the last couple of weeks. I'm going to be very, very brief, and then I will introduce to you each of our speakers very quickly, um, and then turn it over to them. And each of our speakers is just going to speak for a couple of minutes uh, about an aspect of the, the attacks in Paris. Uh, that, that, that seemed the best way to approach this question from their perspective, and then, um, and then we'll have discussion uh, and, and, and questions, of course, uh, at, at that point. So as you know, on January 7th, um, exactly three weeks ago today, uh, two heavily armed young men entered the editorial offices of the satirical magazine uh, Charlie Hebdo in eastern Paris and shot to death 12 people, a maintenance worker, a bodyguard, a police officer, several columnists, and the cartoonists and editorial staff of the magazine, uh, including the editor-in-chief of the journal, Stéphane Chambonnier, uh, known by his pen name, Charles. Several others were wounded in the attack. The next day, January 8, another young man, apparently working together with the January 7 attackers, killed a police officer in the southern uh, Paris suburb of Montrouge. Uh, on Friday, January 9th, that same man took numerous hostages in a Paris kosher supermarket. He killed four of the hostages before he himself was killed by the French police. Uh, the police also simultaneously, in a simultaneous raid, killed the two attackers from Chaliadeau, who had been holed up in a warehouse uh, northeast of the city. Finally, on Sunday, January 11, millions of French citizens demonstrated in marches around the country in order to express both their horror at the events of the previous several days and what was often referred to as their national solidarity. Okay, so those are the events. The, the, the purpose of this forum, um, uh, from my perspective at least today, is twofold. Our first goal today is to provide some context, some general context. What are some of the social circumstances uh, conditioning these attacks? <coughs> How could a magazine, however outrageous its cartoons, in the view of some, produce this violent response? We could suggest, for example, that there's more going on here than violent attacks, as horrible as they were, against a satirical journal. The third attackerist, as, as we know, killed a police officer and they took hostages in a kosher park. As some of the French media has asked, would millions of French citizens have marched in the street if the Chum and Bill attacks had not occurred during those three days and the only attacks had been on the police and the kosher market? Which leads me to today's second goal, the second goal of this forum, uh, which is to talk about some of the debates that began to emerge in the immediate aftermath uh, of the attacks and that, of course, continue to develop even as we speak. As many have begun to ask, who do the Shaoli Hebdo cartoonists and the January 11 demonstrators represent? Do they represent a unified and inclusive French citizenry? Or do they represent a very specific, relatively privileged population in which many disenfranchised citizens of France do not see themselves and their wives reflected? As France continues to wrestle with poverty, racism, and extreme inequality, and at a moment now, post-attacks, when debates among politicians are emerging around whether an American-style Patriot Act of sorts uh, is required, you might ask whether the events of early January offered an opportunity for national solidarity, or indeed a brutal reminder of the divisions 
that continue to separate those who have rallied under the banner of I am Charlie, Charlie, from those at both ends of the political spectrum who have insisted I am not Charlie. Okay? So um, with those just opening remarks, I want to just introduce each of our speakers and, and turn things over to them. So on the end, and we're a little cramped for space here, and the poll is awful, but I think you can see everyone. This is Jeremy Popkin. It feels a little weird to be behind them like this, but this is Jeremy Popkin, uh, our distinguished uh, colleague from the Department of History, Michael Sammers from the Department of Geography, Suzanne Pucci from Modern Classical Languages, French and Francophone Studies, Joel Pett uh, of the Herald Leader, Sadia Zubir Shaw from French and Francophone Studies, Leon Sachs also from French and Francophone Studies, and uh, um, Isan Bagbi from Arabic and Islamic Studies also from Modern and Classical Languages. So I think we'll just... Um, um, this, our speakers are not actually in the order that I imagined them speaking, but I think we'll start today with um, Leon Sachs, and then I'll remind you as we go. Um, well, the most important thing I think I can do right now is be brief. So coming here, I was trying to figure out what can I say briefly. And I think the what I can do is um, provide a framework for asking them more questions. Um, so I don't come with answers, but really just hope to generate more questions. I think I was asked to be on this panel because I've done some work, uh, written some things on this topic of laicite or laicity, which many of you, a term you, many of you are probably familiar with. It sometimes gets uh, translated as secularism. Uh, it is a... Uh, thought of as the sort of French doctrine of separation in church and state. We're not going to do a whole history of that right now, but it has recently come to really mean uh, more than that, or it has sort of slipped away from its original um, sort of limited sense regarding separation of church and state to really become a kind of tool pulled from the left and the right all over the political spectrum to sort of define what it means to be French. Do you really uphold these values? And if so, you are truly uh, French. And if you don't believe in these values and these what laicite or secularism actually means is, 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 is much debated. So I'm not going to get into that. We could, perhaps. Um, so it's really become what the French call instrumentalized nowadays. The right tries to claim it, the left tries to claim it, everyone has a different understanding of it. Why am I talking about this term? Well, um, I understand what happened on the 7th of January and then the several days following it, sort of in terms of concentric circles. And the first epicenter is the massacre, the massacres, these events. Laicite, this question of secularism, is really a later circle. That term then gets invoked um, in a sort of aftermath, in an outer circle, when people try and figure out, well, what does this violent event say about French society as a whole? And what does it say about divisions in French society between a Muslim population and a, I don't know what you call it, the, the majority French population. Normal? Yeah, right. I don't, I don't know. Normal. Um, <laughs> That's what we're <laughs> And then, so there's, there's the epicenter, there's the events that Jeff described. Then there's this larger circle, which is sort of what does this mean to larger French values and the inclusion or exclusion of um, people 
either immediately or several generations ago come from somewhere else. And then the third circle I'm going to suggest is what does this have to do with those of us in the United States? What does this have to do with an American? Uh, does this have anything to do, uh, does this concern us across the Atlantic in any way, shape, or form? So those are sort of my three little spots. There's the epicenter of the event, then there's the secondary circle, if you want, of laicite, secularism, uh, how does France include people who don't historically have a, a, a long tradition to Republican, French Republican values, and the third circle is why does this affect us or any of us in this room? That's all I really want to say. Jeff asked me to say a little bit about press in France and also about the definition of freedom of the press and the tradition of freedom of uh, the press in France. France has a long tradition of critical and <coughs> many people have used the word satirical uh, press. And Charlie Hebdo, I must say, has always been on the most extreme wing of that tradition of uh, critical journalism. It does not have, I think, a real equivalent here in the United States. It's symptomatic that the uh, New York Times, for example, has refused to publish the cartoons that appeared in Sholei uh, Hebdo. In spite of our own tradition of freedom of the press, I'm not sure that Sholei Hebdo could circulate regularly uh, in the United States. Uh, it is a publication whose mission, since it was founded, <laughs> grew out of another uh, periodical in the late 1960s, uh, has been to outrage people. Uh, and uh, to do it especially through uh, visual uh, imagery. Um, and uh, has, it has always been very proud of uh, respecting nothing, not uh, politicians, not uh, religious figures, as you can see in the, uh, in the example here on the board, and not sort of uh, prevailing values of uh, French society either. Uh, among other things, uh, it's frequently outraged women. Uh, the drawings of one of the victims of the uh, attack on the magazine uh, Wolinsky uh, certainly could not be reproduced widely in the United States, and uh, many people would have considered them uh, pornography. Uh, so this was a uh, publication that meant to stir people up, uh, and uh, it has frequently prior to this attack, frequently been in trouble with the law. One of the paradoxes of this attack on it is to turn this publication that was seen as a kind of fringe publication in many ways into a symbol of uh, French liberty and uh, French values. French law on uh, freedom of expression is different from the United States. The uh, French revolutionaries in 1789 issued a declaration of the rights of uh, man and citizen that is, like our Bill of Rights, one of the fundamental documents uh, defining modern ideas of freedom. It included an article on freedom of the press, but uh, unlike the American Bill of Rights, which says Congress shall pass no law regarding uh, freedom of the press, the French formulation is freedom of the press uh, is allowed within limits established by law. Uh, there are, in fact, numerous laws in France limiting what you uh, can say uh, in the media. Uh, there are laws against uh, stirring up racial hatred. There are laws against denying the Holocaust. There are laws against denying that uh, slavery was a violation of uh, human rights. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, Charlie Hebdo has frequently been brought to court over uh, the course of its history uh, for violating one or the other of these uh, prohibitions. Uh, the question raised by the uh, uh, attack on the uh, journal, of course, has been uh, what are the limits of these laws? Uh, there has been an undercurrent in the discussion uh, saying these laws protect some people more than they protect others. They protect the rights, certainly, of non-believers to uh, publish very critical uh, articles and images about religion. Uh, they don't uh, necessarily, or are rarely seen as protecting the rights of religious believers to uh, defend their uh, beliefs. And in that respect, the uh, situation about freedom of the press in France is different from the United States, and the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, massacre has brought some of those differences out uh, and uh, certainly points to the question Leon raised about what does this mean for us in the United States. It means understanding that freedom of the press means different things and has different consequences, even in one of our fellow democracies. Actually, what I'm going to say is uh, on the same line as Jeremy, actually. I'm going to speak a little more about satire. But um, I'd like to spend a few minutes there for bringing a little context to the French reaction to these events and to address the question of why more than three million people across France and more than two people, two million people in Paris alone came together with little advance notice forming a huge rally to demonstrate supposedly French unity in support of the weekly satirical magazine, Charlie Hebdo, where the first murders took the lives of the very well-known and celebrated French cartoonists and satirists. And at which uh, demonstration in the streets of Paris, the phrase, je suis Charlie, I am Charlie in English, was chanted, displayed on signs and placards, and even the Arc de Triomphe flashed the phrase in huge neon letters, Paris est Charlie, Paris is Charlie. This huge response to the killings and in support of the publication has a lot to do with this long tradition in France, one in which political, public, and religious authority figures and institutions are debunked, satirized, caricatured, and brought low. In this century's-old tradition, satire is connected to Republican values in France of the individual citizen's right to free speech and expression, as Jeremy was explaining. But it was not that the magazine Charlie Hebdo meaning Weekly Charlie, it came out on a weekly basis, was itself such a beloved popular magazine, and in effect their circulation before the massacre was something like twenty to 30,000 copies a week. And the paper didn't publish any more than about 60,000 a week, a far cry from the two, three, and then at this point five million copies that were published and smashed up by the public after the attacks. Indeed, many people judged from the outset when this magazine first came into existence in 1970, and was a successor to a magazine called Harry Carey, which was banned for mocking the death of former French president Charles de Gaulle, that its cartoons and articles were bêtes et méchants, dumb and nasty. And this didn't bother the editors at all, who took the label as their own slogan. So speaking about outrageous, right? The magazine with its articles, debates, cartoons has been extremely offensive, outrageous from its start, and often <coughs> fined they stopped publishing in 1981, but came back to life in 1992, and have often been the object of legal suits, as Jeremy said, too. 
Nevertheless, the right to publish such satire, even outrageous and offensive, is what in part is at stake here. Even this particular manifestation of satirical images and writing didn't have all that many faithful followers. The murderous attack on its journalists and its right to publish contradicted a long French tradition, as we were saying. Satire has been since the French Revolution and even before a main staple of the French way of speaking to power, in particular of the church, synagogue, the state, its particular leaders and clergy, presidents, popes, rabbis, prime ministers, and politicians, countering their reach with another kind of power, that of the pen. As Voltaire, the great philosopher and satirist of the Enlightenment put it, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I will defend unto death your right to say it, end quote. And he made, this is Voltaire, his life's mission to attack what he called l'infâme, infamy, that is, infamy of religious and political abuse of power. I think it's important in the US to understand that this tradition of satire is different, more extreme, more offensive, tougher than the kind of satire and mocking to be found in American humor. John Stewart's The Daily Show comes perhaps the closest, right? But even then, not really. Adam Gopnik, writer for the New, York, New Yorker magazine, recently put it very well, I think, in a comparison between French and American humor and satire. These cartoonists and journalists who were murdered, quote, were not the gentle daily satirists of American editorial cartooning, be with that, nor were they anything like the ironic observers and comedians of manners, most often to be found in our own beloved stable here at the New Yorker. They worked instead in a particularly French and savage tradition, forged in a long 19th century guerrilla war between Republicans and the church and the monarchy, end quote. Yet this guerrilla war actually started much earlier in the 19th century, though not necessarily or exclusively in terms of cartoons about which Gopnik was really principally speaking here. So just over a few words about this long French tradition of satire, one can point already as far back as the king's jester, who not only made fun of everyone at court and the public, the fou in French, the fool, the buffoon, was allowed to mock even the king himself until, I believe, Louis XIV, the Sun King, Le Roi Soleil, put a stop to it. And on the eve of the French Revolution that exploded, as you know, in 1789, satire, and in particular, cartoons of the monarchy and aristocracy brought vicious images to the public, such as those of the King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, who were depicted before being guillotined, among other things, as a hog and a serpent, respectively. Perhaps that is why satire is so prevalent, that is to say, in a society in which a strong monarchy along with its clergy, and then followed by a strong state, reigns supreme, satire became a way of speaking to such power, of preparing, and then reinforcing Republican values. From the comedies of Moliere in the 17th century, whose often biting humor mocked everything from hypocritical religious behavior to the aristocracy, as well as just about every professional category, to the images drawn by Daumier, the 19th century cartoonist, whose favorite target was the many-faceted and growing moneyed class of the bourgeoisie, to Charlie Hebdo's attacks on everyone from the Pope to rabbis to Christianity, etc., and more recently, the current French president, Francois Hollande, 
as well as former President Nicolas Sarkozy, have claimed front and center interest in Charlie Hebdo's attack on their sexuality. And yet, both these presidents joined the many other heads of state, politicians, and clergy marching in support of Charlie at the Sunday demonstra demonstration. So no limits for Charlie Hebdo, nothing sacred. And yet, the tragedies recently exploding have long been unfolding in France. Those who carried out the attacks were not some foreigners. They weren't strangers. They were, after all, French nationals, French citizens. The French are not just are not only the inheritors of the revolution and the secular state, they are a mixed, diverse, racial, cultural, and religious society that must contend and work with its differences and with integrating and respecting its minorities so that fundamentalism or radicalism won't be able to gain such a foothold. A divergent, radical ideology is not exclusively to blame for the attacks. It is one thing to say that all French should be able to withstand satire and even offensive satire without murderous rampage, but it is another to insist that all French citizens reap the benefit of equal, equal opportunity in education, employment, as well as in respect. Okay, I want to begin with a question about what is the relationship, if there is any, between poverty and unemployment uh, in France and the attacks, because often that connection is made. And the answer to that question, what is the relationship between poverty and unemployment, is far from obvious. You know, it seems, it seems obvious, poverty, unemployment, and what the European Union and the French called l'exclusion sociale or social exclusion uh, is a kind of sophisticated term that tries to move beyond the Anglo-American conception of poverty lines, so one is excluded from all kinds of things, not just income. And so these three things together, poverty, unemployment, and social exclusion, lead to frustration, communitarianism, uh, eventually to Islamic radicalization, and hence to violence. And on the other hand, critical social scientists make the point that you can't reduce uh, political violence to economic and social disadvantage. This would be, uh, in a word, blaming the poor or blaming the victim. So that's the quandary which I want to talk about. And the first is the question of the relationship between immigration and economic change. And the story is familiar, I think, to a lot of you uh, immigrants from North Africa, primarily Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia, were recruited into France's factories in the 1950s and 1960s, and later uh, West African family reunification uh, in the 1980s. Uh, France entered recession in the 1970s. The factories closed down. Unemployment rose, especially amongst immigrant workers. And as this happened, uh, immigrants were increasingly concentrated in La Banlieue, these uh, poor suburbs on the outskirts of French cities, and the white people, or what are, who are considered white French, 
left these suburbs, and there were uh, and there was a concentration of immigrants in the banlieue, and maybe they were reputed eventually for their deviance, uh, so they developed a reputation among especially non-Muslims as places of unemployment, uh, poverty, crime, violence, poor education, communitarianism, and ultimately Arabs and blacks. So caught within a widespread Islamophobia, uh, these kinds of places, the Bonnieu, were, were labeled by the dominant media as problematic outside mainstream France and demanding government intervention. And as one critical scholar argued, the Bonnieu were not so much places of deviance as they were a deviant construction. And the common narrative continues. Uh, they've been hit hard by unemployment, so unemployment basically since the early 1980s has been at 10% or above. And in some cité, some housing projects in France, uh, for young people, that reaches 50%. Veiled Muslim women are barred from public sector jobs and from a lot of private sector jobs as well. And there's a gap between uh, the kinds of jobs being offered and the education of young people of immigrant origin. So viewed as unemployable, criminal or violent, and Muslim or black African, the popular or populist perception is that young people of immigrant origin cannot be integrated, and at the same time, Islam, or at least some forms of it, cannot be integrated into so-called French society. So the consequence, so the perception goes, is these banlieues become fertile ground for Islamic radicalization based on some combination of architectural blight. So there are large uh, housing projects, they're dreary, and you combine that with police brutality, unemployment, and a suspicion of youth, and uh, then you get Islamic radicalization. That's an argument. Another argument is that young unemployed men are seduced on one hand by consumption in capitalist society, and on the other by the very inability to consume. So caught in the meaninglessness of a blocked consumption and a sense of no future, their frustration leads to another form of seduction, and that is uh, what we call Islamic radicalization. So these are very compelling arguments, um, and uh, from my own field work with young men in one of the poorest cities in France, I want to just suggest five other ways of thinking about it very quickly. Um, first of all, making connections between poverty, unemployment, la banlieue, and violence was made in the so-called riots of 2005, but it's a long distance from the riots of 2005 and the Charlie Hebdo's, Hebdo attacks. They may have common foundations, but uh, there is quite a distance. Um, second of all, the, the, the young people who committed these attacks were from the bustling and, if you will, multicultural 10th arrondissement and not from La Bonnieu. And they had jobs. Okay, they were low-paid, intermittent debt, dead end, but they had jobs. Secondly, uh, most of uh, or the, the, the young people who committed these acts uh, in some ways could not be considered Muslim at all. Uh, yeah, some, many young people of immigrant origin have turned to Salafism in France, 
but there is quite a distance between fundamentalist Islamic practices, political Islamic practice, and extreme acts of violence. Um, third, the term social exclusion, I would put to you, is meaningless. We don't know when someone is excluded or included. How do you measure that? What do we, what do we exactly mean by integrated? Integrated into what? Um, fourth, when we talk about the radicalization of young people of immigrant origin in France, uh, we're t talking mainly about young people with French citizenship uh, or those who can attain citizenship or obtain citizenship by the age of majority. Fifth, um, the bulk of young people of immigrant, immigrant origin are not involved in these activities. Maybe that's obvious, but I think that needs to be said. A lot of young Muslims are graduating from French universities. Uh, they own their own businesses. They're more, if you will, middle class, and they've embraced to one degree or another secular political life. So there's some class mobility amongst young people of immigrant origin. And six, I don't see how poverty, unemployment, and social exclusion can necessarily explain anti-Semitic acts, at least not directly. So I think we need to look at uh, political discourses. I don't have time to talk about those political discourses which might motivate these violent acts. But I wanted to move away uh, in these five minutes from this kind of economic and social determinism. Thank you, Michael. Next slide. Okay. Um, I was asked to share some comments and some thoughts about the role of language, um, language competence, which goes hand in hand with cultural competence. And I would like to talk a little bit about the um, uh, acculturation process, which in some ways, when not successful, creates and generates um, these, uh, in some instances, these types of radicalizations where <coughs> some citizens feel isolated and find some sort of path or power or um, uh, ways of defining their self or their identity. Um, so language, as I would like to uh, discuss it, is not just language as it is used by those citizens or the st stigmatized uh, citizens, but also uh, the way the government uses it. And I would like to uh, say, for example, that when we refer to um, any migrant population from North Africa, we often say French Muslims. And no other community is ever referred to as French plus a religious affiliation. And this is a very important point because not all people from North Africa are Muslim. Some are practicing, some aren't. Some are eventually more radical fundamentalist than others. So my question, or one of my questions is, how does a society like France, resting on Republican values, defining itself as a, um, on the base of laïcité, where religion should be an invisible, if at all present, element in the, the definition of an identity or a citizenship, how, why is it that this one single group has and is still known as Français musulmans, as uh, meaning French Muslims? So this is one point. Now, when a group of citizens uh, is stigmatized 
right away by a particular name, um, it is not surprising that isolation or withdrawal from uh, a group or the main or the host culture or the host group would be a temptation. If I'm not part of the group, then I'm on the outside of the group. If I'm an outsider, then maybe I am going to function or take things uh, or react to things differently. Um, the process of acculturation, which includes um, language competence, it should include social um, um, cultural competence, is usually, or according to some studies, measured by three factors. The first one is language attainment. In other words, good grasp of the language of the host uh, country. The second one is um, intermarriage, where we can see that the um, non-native can be integrated or slowly assimilated into some practices or some cultural uh, values through marriage. Uh, so that's the second one. And the third one is professional or economic status. Uh, when we look at the populations that um, um, that are of concern, the youth that tends to be radicalized and maybe turn to violence. Um, <coughs> let me just make a parenthesis. I have a hard time. Um, I mean, I can deal with this whole event as a, sep I mean, a, a, a separate um, instance, but I still have a very hard time understanding or believing that it is all about a cartoon. It is not, I'm sure you all agree with me, because their um, radicalization and fundamentalism is, is, a, is happening across the world. And many events that we have witnessed, including events in the United States, have not been triggered by uh, cartoons. So this is probably just symptomatic of uh, various issues that have been raised by, 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 by my colleagues. So if acculturation, the, the acculturation process is, a fail, is the failing element of the French society. Uh, the question that one want to ask is, why is it happening? Because it's free school for everyone. It's uh, same rights for everyone. Um, recently, uh, the government has reacted, in fact, as, uh, as uh, early as um, January 22nd, so it hasn't been a week yet. Uh, the government has decided that, oh, well, maybe this acculturation process is not uh, working because uh, we are expecting that it just happens by osmosis, that uh, uh, migrant populations move into the host culture and things happen, but they just happen instantaneously. Um, I found this interesting because, although I'm pretty sure that this is not the belief, I'm pretty sure that we all understand this is not how it works, it, uh, the way it should work has never been implemented, nor has it been addressed, nor has it been uh, uh, modeled correctly. Uh, so, is it enough to post in all schools and the the charter of la um, laicity? Uh, the government uh, requires all public um, uh, establishments to post, but the requirement is make sure it's visible. It's never been make sure it's understood. It's never been make sure. One minute, thank you. It's never been make sure that uh, it is. Uh, um, uh, maybe studied as a topic. Anyway, so the point I want to, to make is that if secularism or laicity is at the root of our uh, Republican values, then maybe they should be shared and studied and uh, not count on just the plain modeling 
Um, and in social cultural theory and studies recently, uh, there's been a movement promoting what we call the ZPA, which is the Zone of Proximal Acculturation, modeled on the ZPD, which is the Zone of Proximal uh, Development, where co there, there are social cogni co cognitive skills that have to be developed. And I, I would like to do uh, uh, or partially what the government is, is uh, promoting, that maybe we should turn to education, that maybe these citizens who are uh, trying to capture that culture, trying to cap capture or succeed, uh, go through that acculturation process, help them succeed by maybe making it part of a learning process. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Jeff, for organizing it. Three quick points. One, you should know that all the Muslim organizations in America, which I know best, but in my understanding, the vast majority of Muslim organizations in France and Europe condemned the massacre that took place in, in January. Second point, are Muslims happy with Charlie Hebdo? No. Very unhappy. Very unhappy with the Islamophobic attacks on Islam, whether here or in Europe. And Muslims overall make a distinction between disagreement and defamation. Disagreement is okay. Defamation is a problem. So early in the Islamic civilization where Christians and Jews lived, they developed an understanding that we can disagree, but we cannot defame one another. And in fact, there are famous debates in the Islamic civilization early and even later between Christians, Muslims, uh, Jews and Muslims, and they disagree on these religious points, but never crossing the line in, in defamation. And so Muslims, I think this is, I think I can speak for the vast majority of Muslims as I understand the situation, uh, have no problem with disagreement, but they don't understand why defamation has to be part of free speech. And I would say, actually, that probably this attitude is probably true of the Mediterranean peoples and Mediterranean lands, not just the, the Muslim lands. That's my sense. And, and this type of uh, sense of freedom to defame is, is more Western Euro uh, European and uh, American to a certain extent. Third point, and that is that there is great suspicion in the Muslim world, among Muslims everywhere, amongst maybe many, most Muslims, that the West is at best, at, at best trying to undermine Islam or at worst trying to destroy Islam. And then there are some who have the firm belief that the West is trying to destroy Islam. 
Those who are alienated the most from the West, those who feel the greatest distance between themselves and the West, they are the people that tend towards this belief that the West is at war with Islam. And of course, the radical Muslim groups pull these people. And really, I, I feel the, the tragedy of Shirley Hebdo is the result of not so much the cartoons. I, I really agree. It is, this is an, a part of the effort of these extremists to make the point that the West is at war with Islam. Thank you. Thank you. I am not Charlie. I call Joel Pett. He said that it is not necessary to speak French here, so I will proceed in English. You know, I recently learned that uh, the Quran doesn't really promise 72 virgins if you blow yourself up uh, in the process of uh, killing people, which came as a great relief to me because uh, it always seemed like that was the craziest thing about the whole... I mean, if you've ever had sex with one virgin, you know that 71 more of them is not a reward. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just saying, after about virgin 15, you just go, listen, I've made a DVD. Why don't you just look at this and get back to me? Uh, I'm a political cartoonist for American newspapers. I'd like to say as an aside that... Uh, New York Times was mentioned earlier, and not only are they the biggest chicken shits in the business in terms of, of uh, uh, publishing almost anything, they don't run anybody's political cartoons. Uh, they stopped about, they haven't had their own cartoonists since 1959, and they stopped running the rest of us about three years ago. So, uh, you know, we're out to destroy, not Islam, but the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's in my book, I know it is, and I'm a fundamentalist about the book of cartooning. Um, uh, when this happened, uh, I mean, I'm here because I'm a cartoonist, right? I'm not an expert on uh, anything, really. Uh, we were the uh, firefighters uh, for one week, like the brave guys who stand up against the terrorists. I mean, it could have been anybody. If they'd have killed four uh, parking lot attendants, it would have been them. You know, little brave parking lot attendants standing alone in their little cinder block houses, <laughs> bravely defending the nation against the parking dash jihadists. You know, so I mean, that's just how the how the media is. You know, they just like swarmed over us and uh, you know put us on TV and radio all around the world for one week, and then went on to the next thing. And it doesn't really matter what the next thing uh, is. Uh, I hope that someone will ask me. I'm on the board of an organization called the Cartoonist Rights Network, which sounds like a joke, but it's actually a nonprofit that stands up for cartoonists who are under fire all around the world, which they are every day. And uh, uh, they get uh, censored and beaten and exiled and sometimes disappeared with a lot of regularity, and you just don't hear about it uh, the way you did about Charlie Hebdo. So in the question-answer thing, I hope somebody will ask me about that and about Larry Flint. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
want to just first briefly thank all of our, all of our speakers and alumni questions. The floor is open, I think, for a discussion among our speakers. Um, I'd like to start off. I'm an art historian, and the first thing I did was to look online at the various um, cartoons. And I know we've been. I have a lot of them with me, too, so if you, if you want to look at anything, just. Well, that was actually my question. Um, I showed the cover of, Char of Charlie Hebdo that was produced actually by Liberation um, after the attacks. Which shows, one, which shows Muhammad crying and saying, all is forgiven. Now, it's created a firestorm of protest around the world because it explicitly is believed by almost all Muslims that you should not depict a prophet, let alone as a guy with a rag on his head and a big nose. Um, even if he's saying all is forgiven and he's crying. Um, and I showed that to my students, and now I'm not really sure I should have for a lot of reasons. So I'm, you know, I'm interested in the fact that you haven't shown any of the cartoons that are really offensive. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't really know which way to go with this. Um, I, I brought them so that we could go either way. Um, and and um, depending I, on who wins the debate, I, I think it's I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, do we show them or not? Which you know, which which. Um, which newspapers? Um, uh, I, I've actually I'm, I'm teaching a class right now in relation to text and image, and one of the things we've talked about in this class is that these newspapers, that uh, which is most newspapers have refused to run the, the copies of these images, have been reduced to describing them, um, which is you actually can't do. right, which is actually an ancient rhetorical uh, principle of ephrasis, which is describing a visual image, and there's a perfect <coughs> example of it that is that's brought forward by exactly this question about whether the images should be shown, and if not, then how do we describe them? How do we convey their provocative content and style? Can I ask a question? How many people here have seen any of those images? About a third? Yeah. Well, I was going to say that, you know, I really don't think the portraying Muhammad is the ultimate um, stimulus for dissatisfaction among Muslims. It's more the defamation of Muhammad. If there were a neutral picture, halfway sympathetic picture, not trying to say something very derog derogatory, I think Muslims would say, oh, you know, crazy French people, you know. Just, you know. <laughs> I don't think it's an issue. It's the defamation. And I, in my class, I showed the pictures. We had a good discussion about all the, the cartoons. But there's one, there are a few cartoons I couldn't show. One of Muhammad naked on his front. I didn't show that one. With his butt up in the air, saying basically to a cameraman behind him, don't you love my butt? Or, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's, that crosses the line. I'm sorry. That, that crosses the line. And there are others like that. Many of them are not a problem whatsoever. They are, in fact, very, in a sense, you know, complementary of Muhammad and Islam. So I have no problem, and, and I don't think most Muslims would have a problem of showing most of the, the cartoons. It, it's the ones that are really defamatory that 
of the problem. Okay, here's the thing. The line that that crosses is this line of decency that none of us would cross. I would never do that to you out of respect for your religion. But that doesn't mean if you wanted to, you shouldn't be able to do it. You can do it. You can draw Muhammad's hairy ass looking right in your face and put it on the web and laugh at it. I mean, you have to take the risk that you will offend people, that you will contribute to a rift in that's worldwide and very threatening in a way that is not at all helpful, and you might get yourself killed and your friends and family. But if you're willing to do that, you get to do it. Every time there's an argument about free speech, it's always speech that any of us decent people wouldn't do. The uh, case law that has given American satirists the widest range is from Larry Flint's Hustler magazine, where he suggested that a TV preacher had had his first sex experience in an outhouse with his mother. That guy who uh, pranced around at those military funerals saying God hates fags was at the center of a free speech uh, controversy. The, when the Nazis used to march in order to make it the uh, American Jews the most angry, they would do it in Skokie, Illinois. It's always, always the case that we wouldn't do this. But that doesn't mean you should be killed for it or censored for it or you can't do it because you can do it. Every cartoonist in America, our first impulse, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I mean, we didn't know you weren't supposed to draw Mohammed. When would that ever come up? When those Danish guys did it and they were paid to provoke, they weren't regular cartoonists doing their job. Some guy came to them and said, basically, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks to draw Mohammed. And I don't know how many of them knew either. They certainly could have known it was going to cause riots and death around the world. Anyway, our first reaction is, well, bullshit, of course you can draw Muhammad, you know, and probably 90% of us, you know, sat right down and did it. Now, fortunately, there are, uh, you know, standards in American journalism where they wouldn't publish these cartoons. Uh, you know, I came, the closest I came was like just, you know, an ankle, uh, Muhammad's ankle. Uh, and that's only partly because I know that it's wrong. Um, and the rest is there's sort of like societal uh, constraints on you. Like, like he was saying, like, why would you do that? You, the same reason you wouldn't insult uh, any other religion or gays or any group. You know, uh, journalism, advocacy journalism is supposed to be about uh, attacking the powerful on behalf of the weak. So why would you attack somebody, kick them when they're down, when they're feeling besieged and beleaguered? But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to. Sorry for the long-winded answer. If, if I may say, isn't this, again, very symptomatic of what you mentioned uh, saying about a dominant culture versus a minority culture, or as you said, maybe this feeling that the West is out to get the uh, Muslim world? Because Charlie Hebdo, a few years back, also uh, the, there was another cartoon with uh, Jesus Christ at uh, a show and with a crowd, and the whole crowd is applauding, and the text said, I'm so sorry, I wish I could applaud too. And of course, you know, um, it was on the cross. <laughs> yeah, right, so that, this is very offensive as well, and I think it is uh, borderline defamation. However, the Christian population didn't go, didn't react. And again, maybe this is that feeling of minority versus majority, where maybe there's no, no reason to go fight to claim anything back because 
there's no fight, or there's no reason to fight. Sorry. No, that's good. That, that argument has been circulating on blogs in France that defamation hurts those who are, it hurts people differently, and it hurts more those who are disadvantaged. And, um, and I, I think um, that's a strong argument against defamation. On the other hand, it's difficult to determine who gets to determine yeah. what constitutes exactly defamation. Yeah, somebody feels defamed. If you are in this business, every single thing you do every day, unless it truly sucks, if, you know, somebody is mad about it and calls the paper and demands a retraction or an apology, I'm highly offended, how could you do this? Every day. So yeah, you've got to figure out the line somewhere. It's easy to figure out the extremes, but when you start to say, all right, where you cut this off, then that's trickier. Yeah, well, this, this is an example of the difference between the French definition exactly. of uh, press American. freedom and the American one, uh, because, uh, as I said in France, uh, freedom of expression is not unlimited. Well, it's not unlimited here, either. Uh, it, no, it's not, but the legal situation is uh, somewhat different. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, I appreciate your argument. Uh, I'm not sure it fits the French context uh, or uh, it raises the question of whether we are entitled to insist that the French adopt our definition. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. I'm not denying the whole thing. Thank you. <laughs> 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 but it's legal, right? I was, I was also going to address this, uh, this idea of asymmetry because we associate uh, freedom with democracy and individual freedom with the ability to govern oneself and determination that affect one's own existence. But uh, Leon, this uh, militant secularism, ACT, and, and militant French republicanism are often couched uh, precisely in critiques of democracy. Some uh, recent French political theories, which I've devoted to this, and uh, a phenomenon that uh, Michael also brought up consumerism is democratic. We don't want that. We need good republican values. Are not that are not these. So how do you how do you draw the line between uh, these freedoms that are supposed to be guaranteed by a republican ideal and uh, a notion of democracy that might produce some sort of meaningful non-normative problem? Is that possible? Can you, re I, can you reformulate the question? Probably not. The difference between republicanism and democracy. Right. Uh, what is it? How does it? How does it? Or how could it play out uh, in France? Because it might it might be difficult to make a political cultural distinction here between the United States and France as well. Republicanism is not the fact of having not a king and being equal. It's it's positive ideology of its own. Right. Uh, well, um, the the quickest way to ex discuss the difference between republicanism and democracy. Uh, you've already said. I mean, the United States is a Republican democracy. France is a Republican democracy. The main difference is that the United States puts much more emphasis on the word democracy in that formulation, and the French put much more emphasis on the word, uh, I'm generalizing here, Republican in that formulation. So then what's the difference? Typically, what is said is that Republicanism requires uh, an act of abstraction of yourself from
from your particular uh, gender, racial, cultural determinants and the requirement that you imagine yourself as an abstract individual like every other abstract individual uh, in your community. Okay, so it asks you to deny when, when you're in the public sphere. Right, that's very important. When you're in the public sphere, uh, and there are debates as to what we mean in France as to what is meant by the public sphere, but when you're in the public sphere, you're supposed to be, uh, not think of yourself as a uh, black Jewish uh, lesbian, like I am, and, but rather, you know, just another abstract atom having the same rights. And now, there is much sensible observation that that is impossible to do. Um, the United States democracy first recognizes, often recognizes, group membership and counts you as in terms of your particular subject position. So we will never neglect the fact that you were speaking from positions determined by race, gender, sexual orientation. That is the main difference, I think. Well, no, I could go on and on. There are more. But it's this expectation that to be French... Now, laicists would say that that obligation to abstract yourself and see yourself sort of apart from your particular cultural, socio-cultural determinants, does not mean you then cannot be of a particular race, of a particular religion. That's where lots of debate occurs. T to what extent does this abstraction mean you must deny and silence these <coughs> cultural particularisms and determinants? Or what extent can they actually coexist, but you must constantly be making the move between both? And this gets very murky. Uh, it's fun to debate. I like debating it, but I also can see <laughs> for how long I would go on if I tried to go any further into it. So, um, so. One of the um, issues that, in fact, Michael, you brought up, the question of community. And that is used. Oh, speak aloud. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I'm saying that one of the. Um, issues that Michael brought up that I think might could be explained a little more is precisely this notion of communitarism. In other words, that the French do not like, and that's why they don't even count, is it that they don't want to give they're numbers to, of... To. Yeah, now they're starting to. But they don't even want to count people in terms of, that, of what faith you are. So you don't find those uh, figures very easily, although now we know that there are five million Muslims in France. But in other words, if the if people complain as as Muslims, then there's a, a, a difficulty because you're not the French individual citizen anymore. What you are is you're part of this communitarism, which is precisely not not valued as a Republican value. So I mean, I don't know if you want to say something else about that. No, you said it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I could say something. Uh, one thing that surprisingly didn't get mentioned by any of us uh, is the growth of the, uh, the, the, the right-wing radical movement uh, represented by the Front National in France uh, that has made uh, campaigning against, uh, particularly uh, against uh, the, uh, Islamic radicalism in France, one of its main uh, stocks and trade, and this is posing a very difficult problem 
uh, for French democracy uh, because the Front National now has the support of at least a quarter, maybe more, of the uh, population. Uh, there is a very real possibility that in the next French presidential elections, that uh, Marine Le Pen, the uh, leader of the Front National, could very well finish first in the uh, first round of balloting. And uh, I think this poses a very serious dilemma in France, as serious as some of the dilemmas that we've been discussing. Uh, there are reasons to question the Front National's uh, loyalty to the traditions of republicanism, as Leon has uh, defined them. But how in a democratic society can you uh, exclude entirely a uh, movement uh, for which 25 to 30% of the uh, citizens are uh, willing to vote. Uh, we've pounded on the New York Times recently. Uh, last week, the Times ran an op-ed piece by Marine Le Pen. I'm not sure that any of the leading mainstream newspapers in Paris would have run that article. Uh, she is pretty much treated as beyond pale. And as, as an illustration of that, she was not invited. I mean, the, the, yes. the, the National Front made a big point of the fact that when the um, January 11th demonstrations were organized, um, made, you know, most of the major political parties and their leaders were invited officially uh, to the to the march, but um, the, the National Front was not. And so, they, and, and this also illustrates for me uh, the kind of alarming bedfellows that can be created when. Uh, different constituencies say and have said, they are continuing to say, I am not Charlie. Because on the one hand, what you get are uh, disenfranchised populations who say, I, you know, that I am not Charlie, this does not represent me. But the other group that is also saying very loudly, I am not Charlie, is the National Front. And Marine Le Pen's father, who founded the party, Jean-Marie Le Pen, just said two days ago, you know, je ne suis pas Charlie, je suis Jean-Marie. So you end up with these uncomfortable parallels uh, between you know, the extreme right and other uh, 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 other points on the political spectrum of France. Well, I wanted to ask something, but I see hands out here, so I think it's more important. Uh, Germany, you have the AFD, in Great Britain, you have the Austria has a big right-wing party now, the Netherlands. Um, you just look at the immigration process that they have in Europe, or how would you the rise of right-wing parties? Yeah, every country, and they're going to parliament. Yeah, they get more of a time. I was just going to say, the, the rise and the, um, the evolution of right-wing political parties. Extreme right-wing. Extreme, sorry, extreme right-wing, thank you. Extreme right-wing political parties is hardly new. I mean, they, they rose in political power particularly in the early 90s, early 1990s in Germany. Uh, but there were right, extreme right-wing political parties in Austria, in Belgium, in France, uh, beginning in the 1980s, coinciding with unemployment, whether you make that, with the rise of unemployment, whether you make that equation or not, those two seem to be coincidental. So right, the extreme right-wing political parties are not something that emerged, you know, in the last couple of years, but something that have been uh, present uh, in strength since the 1980s, but even beyond. 
isn't it just asking you you're more expert than I am, but isn't it also true, or I've read that they also rise in a step with globalization, that the more that there is a sense that former boundaries and identities uh, related to those boundaries are under threat, uh, the more one clings to groups that will give you an anchored and well-defined sort of uh, root in, uh, in, in, in a particular identity. I, that's a, I'm not an expert in these areas, but my sense is globalization is also t sometimes explained, uh, invoked to explain the rise of right-wing movements. Yeah. But of course, in France, every political party is against globalization. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that is so alarming right now is that you have extreme right-wing in France, and you have problem of radicalization, and you see the, the conflict, you see the, the possibility of conflagration, which, I mean, just has happened, but, um, but I doubt that it's at its end, precisely because of these groups that are so much at, at, at loggerheads, even though they can be bedfellows at, at one point or another. I want to ask a question to Joel Pett, um, and I, 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 it's an unfair question, but it's, it's, it's an important question. Why do we want laws that protect uh, images that are so uh, gross and hurtful? To keep me personally out of trouble? <laughs> um, well, you know, that's a pretty broad question. Uh, and everybody doesn't have those laws around the world. Uh, what the Supreme Court decided in the Flynn case, when that was a unanimous uh, decision, was a standard that if a reasonable person were to be able to recognize that this was not intended to be a depiction of the truth, then it was just somewhere on that uh, continuum of, you know, joke, satire, you know, offhand remark, whatever. Um, I mean, they got uh, Jerry Falwell up on the stand and said, well, did you have sex with your mother in an outhouse? And he sort of huffed and said, oh, of course not, I did not. And they said, well, do you think, I mean, you're a TV preacher. Do you think anybody in the country would believe that you did? And he went, oh, 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 oh of course not. And so they said, okay, so where's the harm done to you if no sane person would believe this? Now, I don't think that answers his question, but I did, that's what I chose to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, this might not be really answered either, but how, how would you, how does one define a reasonable person? Yeah, right. Person or <laughs> right. a sane person, that, right, right, right. you know, if you are in the business of yeah. creating offensive, disgusting pictures of right. comment, uh, how do you claim ignorance? Yeah, why, that's the question. Why would one claim ignorance? You know, you, you could just as easily say, oh, I just didn't know that was so offensive and awful <coughs> to make these nasty. Well, you know, I mean, I have not drawn uh, or even taken no, to my editors. But there is some little piece of it that pisses the hell out of me where you just think, you know what? You cannot tell me that you're going to kill me for a depiction of what you think your God is, you know? 
I mean, stick that up your ass. That's ridiculous. You know, there's a piece of you that just every day just says, well, fuck that, you know? But, pardon me for speaking frankly. I use that one. Uh, I mean, seriously, it's infuriating, you know? And nobody has, has been said by so many people so many times, you know, first of all, Islam is not that strict about those depictions. Second of all, it certainly doesn't say you should kill people for it. You know, this is all, it's like a false argument between the uh, you know satire fundamentalists who don't really get it and the and the religious fundamentalists who don't really get it. Um, you know, you're right. Making laws is difficult, and there's a whole spectrum of expression, and it's also fluid over time and different. You know, cultures in different places, the law changes, and um, I don't know, uh, it's another crappy answer. Don't ask me anything else. It just, so just, <laughs> just kind of makes me wonder if, you know, we're trying to redefine freedom as uh, you can't tell me what to do, I right. can just do whatever the hell I want. Which is to. kind of I'm childish. I'm just going to make this image just because I freaking can. Right, I get that. You I know, totally get that. What does that put forward? What does that contribute? I know. I mean, I know, but there are always going to be some small percentage of people who just want to do that, That's and wh what are you going to do to them? <laughs> they all work for Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, thank you. Sure, thank you. Um, so when Pope Francis was asked about it, I think um, he made a really good comparison. He made it, and he said, um, if somebody's cussing against my mother, he's obviously going to get a punch. Can you speak louder, please? Yeah, I can speak louder. Um, and so I was just curious for you guys, um, as we see the world has already started to move on, um, how do you think that the French people will like start to remold towards this? What changes will there be between these two groups, if any? And are they doing anything to present prevent Islamophobia um, compared to like the events that happened after 9/11 and with that? Unfortunately, one of the things that has been happening is that. They are becoming more conscious of every kind of possible security. So that there's a hugely increased police presence. <clears throat> there's a, um, you know, they're stopping all kinds of people and arresting people who might be linked to those who were linked, you know, to the attacks. And that's uh, of course a very frightening thing because it can only lead to. You know, more feelings of alienation and maybe encourage more radicalization. So that's one of the things that I'm hoping, you know, we'll have some other avenue uh, apart from this secure, securing the country. Well, actually, on a more constructive way, and this is what we're all hoping for, as I said in my introduction on January 22nd, um, the government has actually required that introduce units on ethics and civics and study of secularism as part of the curriculum from elementary school all the way through secondary schools. And this has had, is to be started uh, now. So this is one of the, I, I don't know that it will probably take a lot of time. Um, It'll probably mean spelling out what this all means because you know if it's not enough to, to just include it. There's also maybe a way to uh, to treat it and a way to talk about it. But this is a step that just 
took place last week. There's also some, I'm not exactly sure what, what is going to be done, but there, <clears throat> there are attempts to uh, work with prisons because more than 50% of people in prison in France are Muslim. <coughs> and, um, but, but that's, but that's, <laughs> but that's, the, the radicalization that's where radicalization happened takes place. Prison, yeah. So okay. I know that there are some uh, measures that are, they're trying to put forth. I'm not exactly sure what they are. To well, try one of the things they're arguing yeah. for right now, and it's one example of these, these um, laws that are currently being debated, has to do with isolating Muslim prisoners from the other prisoners. And it's, of course, as you can imagine, that's, incredibly controversial. They're trying to hire more uh, imams, I guess, to be brought. There are very few imams in these prisons. And what happens is that because there are not trained, as I understand it, there are not trained uh, you know, um, preachers in these prisons, what, what happens is that these young uh, men who have, up until that point, been uh, you know, petty criminals, um, learn what they understand to be Islam from other prisoners, essentially, from themselves. Okay, that's how these guys, Karachi, was. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, in the United States. Exactly. I want to, want to address the point that uh, Leon raised, and that is, what does this have to do with the U.S.? Yeah. The fact is, that the initial, the fact is, the initial, as I understand it, from a long, um, article in the German Newsweekly What I understand from a long article in the German Newsweekly is that the initial radicalization of Sharif Kauchi occurred in connection with the invasion of Iraq. And there, there we are. That's where the U.S. fits into this puzzle. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the political discourses that I wanted to talk about and, and, and couldn't are about how Muslims in France feel about Western involvement, Western military involvement in Muslim-majority countries. And that's exactly what you brought up. And so the, these are some of the uh, very dominant political discourses that circulate in prisons and amongst Muslims, amongst some Muslims in France. And, the, and that makes people angry. And that is one of the ways in which we can connect U.S. military involvement and the, the attacks. Is the residual resentment of colonialism? I mean, I know that goes back a long way, but it's not like the French did uh, invade. But that, that has its marks, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also followed the fact that Frank... Oh, I'm so no. <laughs> <laughs> that France also very recently took a stand uh, to recognize Palestine as a state, and that didn't, of course, you know, go go unnoticed, and uh, probably is generating quite a few reactions from all kinds of uh, uh, groups. So I think it's 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 not well colonialism as part of the past, but there's a whole future ahead of us that um, the whole world is involved in. And uh, in, in some ways, it may explain the, the, uh, the second wave of, uh, uh, of criminal acts that, were, uh, uh, that happened in the kosher store, for example. So that's another reaction to a, a, a political position that uh, France may have taken. They're also on the side of uh, us, the good guys, uh, and the real God yeah. in Syria, right? Okay. 
they've been helping us bomb uh, targets in Syria? Well, uh, Sadia's comment brings up another topic that uh, we haven't really discussed and won't because we're about to stop. Uh, but that is the situation of the Jewish community in France. And uh, it certainly is a concern. Uh, the Jewish community in France is the largest uh, Jewish community after the United States and uh, Israel, the largest one in Europe. Uh, the fact that the French government has felt obliged to uh, take extraordinary security measures to protect synagogues, Jewish schools, and uh, places like the kosher market that was attacked is a sign of the, uh, the insecurity of the uh, Jewish uh, community, that the Jewish community feels in uh, France at the moment. Uh, France uh, has traditionally uh, had, since the French Revolution, a, a tradition of being a, a country where Jews were accepted, with, of course, the exception of the Second World War. Uh, and uh, feeling that that, is now, that that is now no longer the case, that the Jews cannot feel safe there, is a very serious change for the French Jewish community and uh, certainly a very great concern for the future of France as a multicultural democracy. Right, and also, I mean, the fact is that people in France feel that this is like the eve of the 1940s, and it could be happening again when France um, became anti-Semitic and following the Nazi. Although, also, there are differences between the 1940s. Uh, oh. uh, the French right is now beginning to talk about France's Judeo-Christian yeah, civilization right. as a way of excluding uh, Islam from the French community, but for the first time including the Jews. I hate to do this. I hate to break up discussion. I know this is certainly not an adequate uh, time frame to have this, this, uh, this conversation. I know Michael has to teach. Joel has to feed his meter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would like one more time to just thank all of our participants today. Thank you.